0: Mothers know best, or do they? Well, as a mother and a daughter, I have some thoughts on the subject. This week on Selected Shorts, two stories about mothers and their children, and a surprise special guest who also knows a thing or
1: two about moms. I made homemade Halloween costumes. You won first prize as the headless horseman at the Halloween party when you really wanted that scratchy princess costume from the store. I made birthday cakes from scratch adding layers and layers until they collapsed. And I think the whole family was relieved when I began to put some of that creative energy somewhere else into stories. I'm your host, Meg Wolitzer. Please stay with us.
0: You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction one short story at a time. The title of this program is Mothers Know Best, which should give you pause. I mean, come on. Do they? Always? What about that whole you-have-to-wait-an-hour-after-swimming thing? They always said it to us because I guess it was in the handbook called How to Be a Good Mother, but is it actually even true? Maybe it is. I don't want to stop you from waiting an hour, but what if they don't always know best? Or what if they need to understand something important about you before they can possibly know best? Of course, in order for them to understand something important about you, it might mean you have to reveal something about yourself to them, which isn't always comfortable. The stories on the show present very different forms of mothering. In one, a young mother is trapped in a lie. In the other, a mother and son tap dance around each other's lives, revealing and concealing as they go. And later on the show, my own mother joins us as a special guest. Believe me, it was not easy to book her But luckily, I knew someone who knew someone, and after a lot of back-and-forth, we made it happen, and the fee she demanded was fairly reasonable. Our first story, Trip in a Summer Dress, is from author Annette Sanford's collection, Lasting Attachments. Much of her fiction, which includes a second collection, Crossing Shattuck Bridge, and the novel Eleanor and Abel, a romance, is set in and around small towns in Texas like her own Ganado. And although Lasting Attachments was published in 1989, Trip in a Summer Dress feels as rural and detached from the mainstream as if it took place in the 1940s. In this delicately wrenching piece, we follow a young woman who's on her way to get married, but she's also on her way to leaving her real life behind. What's that wedding tradition? In this case, maybe it's something borrowed, something askew. The actor Maya Dillon, who's the reader here, has a way with gently devastating tales. Dylan's theater credits include Crimes of the Heart and Three Sisters. On television, like many of our readers, she did time on the Law & Order franchise. Here she is with Annette Sanford's Trip in a Summer Dress.
2: Moths are already dying under the street lamps when I board the bus. I have said goodbye to my mother and to Matthew, who is crying because he's almost six and knows I won't be back in time for his birthday. I won't be back for the next one either, but who's going to tell him that? I spread myself out on two seats. I have a brown plastic purse, a tan makeup case, and a paperback book. I could be anybody starting a trip. The driver is putting the rest of my things in the luggage compartment. His name is E.E. Davis, and the sign at the front of the bus says not to talk to him. He can count on me. <laughs> the bus is coughing gray smoke into the loading lanes. I can see my mother and Matthew moving back into the station out of sight. I fan myself with a paperback and smoothed the skirt of my dress. Blue, cotton, no sleeves. It's too late for a summer dress, my mother said while we waited. Before that, she said, October is a cold month in Arkansas. She said that Matthew needs vitamins, that the man who sells tickets looks like Uncle Harry. Some things she said twice without even noticing. We're moving finally. E.E. Davis is making announcements in a voice like a spoon scraping a cooking pot. We rest 20 minutes in Huntsville. We stay in our seats while the coach is in motion. All the time he's talking, I'm watching my mother and Matthew on the corner, waiting for the light to change. Matthew is sucking two fingers and searching the bus windows for me. I could wave, but I don't. I'm riding off into the night because two days from now in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, I'm going to be married. Bill Richards is his name. He has brown hair and a gentle touch and a barber shop. He thinks marriage is a maiden heaven. He thinks Matthew is my mother's son. She's young enough. She married and had her first child when she was 15. So did I, but I wasn't married. Matthew was born on Uncle Harry's tree farm in East Texas, where I went with my mother after she told all her friends she was pregnant again. She needed fresh air and a brother's sympathy, she said, and me to look after her. I was skinny and flat-chested and worked after school in the aviary at the zoo, mixing up peanut butter and sunflower seeds and feeding fuzzy orphans with an eyedropper. Most nights I studied. What happened was just a mistake I made because I'd never given much thought to that kind of thing. And when the time came, it caught me without my mind made up one way or the other. So, we went to the tree farm. Every day while we waited, my mother preached me a sermon. You didn't pass around a child like a piece of cake. And you didn't own him like a house or a refrigerator. And you didn't tell him one thing was true one day and something else was true the next. You took a child and set him down in the safest place you could find. Then you taught him the rules and let him grow. One thing for sure, you didn't come along later just when he was thinking he was a rose and tell him he was a violet instead, just because it suited you to. What you did was you gave him to your mother and father and you called him your brother and that was that. Except one thing, they let you name him. I picked Matthew because of the dream. All through the night, I'd been Moses' sister, tending to the reed basket when the queen found him. All night, I was Moses' sister, running up and down that riverbank, hollering till my throat about burst. When the pain was over, there he was, with my mother taking care of him, just like the Bible story says. Only oh, you can't name a little pink baby Moses, because Moses was mostly an old man. <laughs> so I settled on Matthew. It made him mine. There are four people on this bus. There's a black boy in the second seat blowing bubbles with his gum. Across from him are a couple of ladies just out of the beauty parlor with hair too blue. And a child one seat up across from me. A little girl. Scared, probably. She's pretty young for traveling in the dark. I'm not gonna look at them anymore. Everything you do in this life gets mixed up with something else. So you better watch out, even just looking at people. Landscapes are safer pine trees, rice fields, oil rigs. I got my fill of them coming back from Uncle Harry's. I didn't look once at Matthew, but I felt him even when he wasn't crying. He had hold of me way down deep and wouldn't let go for love nor money. I sat on the back seat, my father drove, and my mother cooed at her brand new son. The first one and four girls. If she said that one time, she said it a hundred. Finally, I said so loud, my father ran off the road, he's not your child. I birthed him, I'm his mother, and I'm going to raise him up to know I am. Now, what's the matter with that? My mother said, count the eyes and you'll know. She didn't even turn around. I got used to it. The way you do a thorn that won't come out or chronic appendicitis. But it's hard to pretend all the time that something's true when it isn't. So I didn't. I talked to Matthew about it. I fed him cereal on the back porch by the banana tree and I told him just how it was he came about. I took him to the park in his red-striped stroller and showed him pansies and tulips and iris blooming. I told him they were beautiful and that's the way it is with love. Only I hadn't loved his father, I said. And that's where I was wrong. A person ought never to give his body if his soul can't come along. I told him I'd never leave him because he was me and I was him. And no matter what his mother, who was really his grandmother, said, I had a plan that would save us. And then he learned to talk. And I had to quit all that. It's just as well. Cause look at me now, leaving, going away from him as hard, as fast as I can. Me and E.E. Davis, burning up the pavement to Huntsville so we can rest 20 minutes and start up again. Now, here's the town. That little girl across the aisle is rising up and squirming around. Maybe she lives here. Maybe one of those houses going by with lights on and people eating supper inside is hers. But I'm not gonna ask. You get a child started talking, you can't stop them sometimes. Like Matthew. The day I said yes to Bill Richards, I set my plan a going. I took Matthew to the park like I always had. We sat under a tree where I knew something was likely to happen, because lately it always did. And when it started, I said, "Look at there, Matthew. See that red bird feeding her baby? That's not her baby, he said when he finally found the limb. She's littler than it. That's right. The baby's a cowbird, but it thinks it's a red bird. He was real interested. Does the red bird know it's not her baby? Yes, but she keeps on taking care of it, because it hatched in her nest, and she loves it. How'd it get in her nest? It's Mama left it there. I was taking it slow by then, being mighty careful. She gave it to the redbirds, but just for a little while. Matthew looked at me. Mamas don't do that. Sometimes they do, if they have to. Why would they have to? If they can't take care of the babies, it's better that way. Why can't they take care of them? Well, for one thing, cowbirds are too lazy to build nests, or won't, or can't. I saw right away I'd said it all wrong. Matthew stuck out his bottom lip. I don't like cowbirds. They aren't really bad birds, I said, quick as I could. They just got started on the wrong foot. Wing. (laughs) Nothing went right with that conversation. They're ugly, too. The mama comes back, Matthew. She always comes back. She whistles and the baby hears and they fly away together. I wouldn't go, I'd peck her with my nose. (laughs) Let's go look at the swans, I said. I'd tell her to go away and never come back. Maybe you'd like some popcorn? I would be a red bird forever. Or peanuts, how about a nice big bag? When we got home, he crawled up in my mother's lap and kissed her a million times. He told her cowbirds are awful. He told her he was mighty glad he belonged to her and not to a cowbird. She was mighty glad too, she said. I told her now was the time to set things straight, and she could be a plenty big help if she wanted to. She told me, little pitchers have big ears. Eureka Springs is about the size of this town we're going through. In Eureka Springs, the barber shop of Bill Richards is set in a mountain corner, he says, and the streets drop off like shelves around it. Eureka Springs is a tourist place. Christ stands on a hill there and sees the goings on. In Eureka Springs, Bill Richards has a house with window boxes in the front and geraniums growing out just waiting for someone to pick them. I can see peoples in these houses in this town hanging up coats and opening doors and kissing each other. Women are washing dishes and kids are getting lessons. Next year, Matthew is going to school in Houston. My mother will walk with him to the corner while he'll catch the bus. He'll have on short pants and a red shirt, cause red's his favorite color, and he won't want to let go of her hand. In Eureka Springs, it'll be too cool for a boy to start school wearing short pants. In Eureka Springs, a boy won't have to. I can see I was wrong about that little girl. She's not scared. She's been up and down the aisle twice and pestered E. e. Davis. She's gotten chewing gum from the boy and candy from the ladies. It's my turn now, I guess. Hello. I know better, but I can't help it. She puts a sticky hand on my arm. How come you're crying? Dirt in my eye. From the chemical plant, she says, pretty smarty. They're polluters. They make plastic bags and umbrellas. I open my purse and take out a Kleenex. How do you know? I know everything on this road. You live on it? She throws back her head like a TV star. practically Fridays I go that way? She points toward the back window. Sunday's I come back. My daddy's got weekend (laughs) custardy. She hangs on the seat in front of me and breathes through her mouth. She smells like corn chips. They had a big fight, but Mama won most of me. You got any kids? No. Yes. Don't you know? A tooth is missing under those pouty lips. I have a boy, a little younger than you. I never said it out loud before to anybody but Matthew and him when he was a baby. Where is he? At home, with his grandmother. Why do not you bring him? I'm going a far piece, he's better off there. She pops her gum and swings a couple of times in one heel. You got a boyfriend? Yes, it's out before I can stop it. I ought to bite my tongue off or shake her good. A child with no manners is an abomination before the Lord, my mother says. That's one thing about my mother. She won't let Matthew get away with a thing. The child turns up her mouth corners, but it's not a smile. My mama's got one, too. Name's Rex. He's got three gold teeth and a Cadillac. How far is it to Huntsville? Two more towns and a dance hall. You run on. I'm going to take a nap. She wanders off up the aisle and plops in a seat. In a second, her feet are up in it, her skirt sky high. Somebody ought to care that she does that. Somebody ought to be here to tell her to sit up like a lady, especially on a bus. All kinds of people ride buses. I met Bill Richards on a bus, going to Galveston for splash day. He helped us off and carried my tote bag and bought us hot dogs. He bought Matthew a snow cone. He built him a castle. He gave him a shoulder ride right into the waves. A girl married to Bill Richards wouldn't have to do a thing but love him. A girl married to Bill Richards wouldn't tell him she had a son with no father, my mother said, and she wouldn't tell her son he was her son, or a red bird either. She would forget it and love her brother. We're stopping at a filling station sort of place. The blue haired ladies are tying nets around their heads and stuffing things in paper sacks. They get out and a lot of hot air comes in. The door pops shut and E.E. Davis gives it the gas. Ten more miles to Huntsville. My mama better be there this time, the child says, loud and quivery. I had it right in the first place, I guess. Her scare is just all slicked over with chewing gum and smart talk. Inside, she's powerful, shaky. Your mom will be there, don't you worry. Before I can close my mouth, she's on me like a plaster cast. I should have been a missionary. She's always late, last time I waited all night. The bus station man bought me a cheese sandwich and covered me up with his coat. Something kept her, I guess. Yeah, she slides down in the seat beside me. Rex. I don't want to talk to her. I want to think about things. I want to figure out how it's going to be in Eureka Springs with Christ looking right in the kitchen window when I'm kissing Bill Richards (laughs) and him knowing all the time about Moses' sister. I want to think about Matthew growing up and getting married himself and... Even dying without ever knowing I'm his mother. Most of all, I want to get off this bus and go and get my baby. Huntsville, yells E.E. I told you, I told you she wouldn't be here. That child's got a grip on my left hand so tight the blood's quit running. We're standing in the waiting room with lots of faces, but none of them is the right one. It's pitch dark outside and hot as a devil's poker. Just sit down, I say. She'll come. I have to go to the bathroom. Go ahead, I'll watch for her. I go in the phone booth. No matter what my mother says, Matthew is a big boy. He can take it. So can Bill Richards. I put two quarters and seven nickels on the shelf by the receiver. I get the dial tone. I spin the numbers out, 11 of them, and drop my money in the slot. I see the woman coming in out of the dark. She's holding hands with a gold-toothed man and her mouth's all pouty like the child's. My mother's voice shouts hello in my ear. Wait, I tell her. I open the door of the phone booth. Wait, she's in the restroom, You child. There, she's coming yonder. I can see they wish she wasn't. I can see how they hate Sundays. Talk if you're going to, my mother says. She only calls long distance when somebody dies. Mama, I wanted to tell you that you wish you had your coat. I knew it. The air's too still and sticky not to be breeding a blizzard. It's hot here, for goodness sakes. "'Won't be for long. 30 by morning,' the TV says. "'20 where you're going. Look in the makeup case. I stuck in your blue wool sweater.'" "'Matthew in bed and finally dropping off. "'I told him an hour ago, the sooner you shed today, the quicker tomorrow will come. "'But he's something else to convince, that boy. comes by it naturally,' I say, and plenty loud. "'But she doesn't hear. "'Have a good trip,' she's yelling, and wrap up warm in the wind.'" When I step outside, it's blowing all right. Just like she said, hard from the north and sharp as scissors. By the time E.E. Davis swings open the door and bellows all aboard for Eureka Springs, that wind is tossing up newspapers and bus drivers caps and the hems of summer dresses. It's whipping through door cracks and rippling puddles and freezing my arms where the sleeves ought to be. If I was my mother, I get mighty tired of always being right.
0: Maya Dillon performed Annette Sanford's Trip in a Summer Dress. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Sanford perfectly conveys the way the young narrator is trapped between the rock of being a daughter and the hard place of being a mother. When we return, a subtle game of emotional hide-and-seek between a mother and her grown son. Perhaps you've played some version of that in your own family. Or maybe listening to this story will make you realize that you have. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Our first mother and child story involved a difficult decision. An easy one is that if you missed any part of this show, just go to our website, selectedshorts.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week on the podcast, you can hear the full conversation with my mom and fellow writer, Hilma Wallitzer. And please, if you like the show, Share it with your friends and followers, or your mother. Our second story involving a mother-child relationship is called Palaver. According to Merriam-Webster, palaver means, one, a long discussion or meeting, usually between persons of different cultures or levels of sophistication, two, idle talk, or three, misleading or beguiling speech. All of the above surfaces in this touching but playful tale by Brian Washington. A mother is visiting her son in Japan, where he is both teaching English and learning how to navigate queer culture. She is both moving into his life and taking a break from a challenging marriage. Each of them is reluctant to share too much, while also longing to know more about the other. And we hear from both sides in alternating narratives. The author Brian Washington wrote the critically acclaimed short story collection Lot and the novel Memorial. The quietly formidable mother is performed by actor and director Petronia Paley. Her many credits include Naomi and Eli's No Kiss List and Transporter. Her diffident son is played by Michael Potts. And no wonder he's good at being emotionally wily. His credits range from The Wire and True Detective to The Book of Mormon. Here are Paley and Potts in Brian Washington's Palaver.
3: He made his mother a deal. For every story he told, she'd give him one of her own. That's hardly fair, she said.
4: Bullshit, he said. It was the first time he'd used that word with her, and she let it slide.
3: The first of many firsts between them. He'd been living in Sheen Okobo for the better part of three years. She'd flown from Houston to Los Angeles to Taipei to Tokyo to see him, or at least that's what she said on the phone. He knew that she and his father were going through it. This was one of the reasons he'd left, although he hadn't thought about it at that time.
4: Now, his mom sat on the sofa, snacking on a bag of chips, holding a magazine neither of them could read. Her son stood by a broom. His place was mostly plants and some shoes. He had this balcony overlooking a bus stop next to a convenience store and a stairwell to the train station. You go first said the son. Absolutely not, said his mother. Fine, I'll start.
3: Jesus. Once upon a time, said the son, I fell in love with a married man. I don't need to hear this, said his mother. We met in a bar one night, said the son. He bought me a drink. Then he asked me to come home with him.
4: The mother looked at her son's face before she turned to the wall and then to the window beside them. The one thing his apartment had It was the view. It drizzled her first morning in the country, and she'd watch sheets of rain paint a gaggle of grade schoolers by the stoplight. You're serious, she asked. No joke.
3: You aren't serious. Why would I lie now? Unbelievable. Were you safe? I'll only tell if you play. This isn't a fucking game. Is that a yes? God, said his mother. Good, said her son. Sweeping at what passed for his kitchen. We were safe. We're safe.
4: Is this a thing that's still
3: happening? Asked his mother. Are you still seeing him? It's your turn, said the son. You give me one of yours first. I'll make it easy for you, said the son later. Just tell me how you met Dad. It was his day off. His mother sat beside him on a bench in the train station. They were waiting for the local line just after rush hour, and he figured they must have made a funny picture as his mom groaned with her arms crossed and he tapped away at his phone leaping between a volley of apps. Who the hell are you talking to, his mother said.
4: How long were you living here before you lost your mind? I only asked a question. You're being fucking disrespectful. Hardly. Who are you texting?
3: My students. Is that appropriate here, asked the mother? It's fine, said the son and it's your turn." Gradually, the platform filled beside them. Every other occupant was a businessman of some sort. Every now and again, they'd chance a glance at the mother and her son. But at some point, a lady rolled two twins in a stroller onto the platform. The kids wouldn't stop crying. Everyone turned to glare at them. Eventually, gradually, the children settled down. When the train arrived, tinkling a three-tone melody, The son and his mother waited a moment. Then they both stood, trailing the woman with the stroller, leaning into a pair of seats by the conductor's booth. The woman with the twins turned their way, sighing. Both of her kids waved, so the mother and her son waved back. Once upon a time, the mother didn't tell her son,
4: I thought I'd take you back to Toronto. We'd live with my sister. The two of us would leave Texas in the middle of the night. We wouldn't say a word to your father and we'd never come back. Once upon a time, the mother didn't tell her son, I thought I'd become an opera singer. Once upon a time, the mother didn't tell her son, I wrote poetry. I scribbled the words in a notebook and hid it in the guest room. But one day, you wouldn't remember this, I found you crying underneath the bed and the pages were spread
3: open right at your feet. I think you were nine. I never wrote a poem again. The son taught English at a juvenile detention center in Yunaka. His pay could have been better, but it was more than enough to live on. Most of his students would never have a reason to use the language, or at least that's what the son told his mom. But the teens still let him teach them, falling asleep only occasionally. They thought he was interesting. Every hour or so, he gave them breaks to use their phones. That sounds depressing, said the mother. Sometimes it is, said her son. But I like it.
4: You couldn't have just been depressed in Texas?
3: I was. And whose fault is that? The son opened his mouth, and then he closed it. My students are funny, said the son, and they don't take any shit. Impossible, said his mother. How so? They
4: put up with you.
3: That isn't cute,
4: said the son. Anyway, said the mother, I thought you were an
3: accountant or something. Thanks for caring, said her son. Don't act like you've ever kept me in the loop. Whatever, said the son. I had another job the first few months. And how'd that go? It was fine, but one of the clients complained. Because you were black, said his mother? No, said the son, but then he didn't say anything else. Some nights, the son stayed out a bit later. His mother would walk to the convenience store for dinner,
4: nodding at the cashier when he bowed. Sometimes her husband texted her and she'd think about how to reply, but she never sent anything. It was enough for now for him to know she'd read it. Then one evening, smoking on her son's balcony, the mother found folded under her chair's leg a crumpled Polaroid of two men. One of the men was her son. The other guy looked a little older. They both smiled, holding inflatable numbers on each other's shoulders. And the mother thought briefly that her son looked better unshaven after all. So she took a photo of the photo with her phone, and then she refolded it, slipping it under the seat. The mother started to light another cigarette, but then she thought better of it, and she stepped inside instead, kicking off her son's flip-flops, leaving a window
3: open for the breeze. The next evening, the son and his mother sat in a bar, one of the tiny enclaves lighting the alleys of Ni Posters and flyers showing men fucking in various positions were splayed across the walls while a pulsing techno track thrummed from above. The son watched his mother eye each picture and he winced at her just a bit, but she didn't say anything about them. The room was mostly empty. Two dudes fingered their drinks in the corner whispering each other's ears. The bartender, a bearish man, napped by the register. The son drank a frothy beer calling out for a second, and his mother shocked him by raising her finger for one-two. The bartender said something in Japanese. It made the son laugh. He replied with something that made the bartender shake his head. He thinks I'm charging you, said the son. Don't
4: lie, said the mother. I know where we are. You didn't say anything. It didn't
3: need to be said. Is this your first time in a gay bar? Tell me about your married man, said the mother. This made the son wince again. He fidgeted in his seat. Once upon a time, said the son, a boy met a man. Here we go, said the mother. The man promised this boy a kingdom, said the son, or at least a house in the suburbs. And the boy thought this man was lying, but he wasn't, which made the boy happy. Except the man maybe hadn't told the entire truth. That he had a wife, said the mother? And a child, said the son. "'Jesus!' "'On the way!'
4: "'That doesn't make a difference!' She hadn't meant to raise her voice. The son and his mother looked around the bar, but the two men in the corner only grinned, raising their beers. "'I know you don't have any morals,' said the mother. "'But do you think wrecking is a game?'
3: "'You're asking the wrong question,' said her son. "'Does his wife know?' "'It's your turn,' said the son, sipping his beer.
4: "'A little later on the train home,' The mother exhaled in her seat. Their car was packed with drunken businessmen patting one another's backs, a couples nosing each other's ears, and stragglers tapping at screens. Fine, she said. Your father stole me from a tower. We can't talk on here, said the son. You asked me a question and this is your answer. The game's no fun if you lie. Your father plucked me from the top floor, said the mother carried me all the way down, Slater dragon and all the townspeople. You're being sore, said the son. You didn't fly all this way to be sore. I didn't fucking fly all this way to play games with you,
3: said the mother. And how would you know anyway? Dad's not the kind of guy, said the son. And his mother started to say something else, but the train slowed to a stop, and his mom shifted in her seat, and he reached for the rail, steadying them both. Most
4: days, the son went to work, the mother followed him to the train station where they diverged. And she rode from Shinjuku to Akibahara to Shibuya, funneling change into vending machines, walking in and out of shops, snapping photo after photo in Yoyogi Park. In front of the park shrine, some women asked the mother to take their photo, so she did. When they asked the mother if she wanted one of herself, she smiled and they snapped about 40. Some evenings, when the mother knew her son was finally asleep, she slipped on her sneakers, hopped down the stairs, and walked the strip lining the road by the station. Even on weeknights, the street lights were always on. Traffic slowed her trickle. The mother made bets with herself. She'd walk to the next intersection, and then she'd turn right back around. But when she actually reached said intersection, it became the next intersection and that one became the intersection that followed. When the mother made it back to the apartment, she'd stand in the doorway, waiting to hear her son's snores. Once they returned, the mother settled back into bed, flipping her phone onto its side. There was a night when her husband texted her a single emoji, and she responded immediately without even thinking about it, just as a reaction. She thought about how there were some things we simply can't shake.
3: Once upon a time, said the son, I spent the night on a bench in Montrose. Once upon a time, said the son, I woke up in an entirely different part of Houston in someone else's clothes. Once upon a time, said the son, I brought a boy to the house, in high school, I think. You didn't, said the mother. This is a thing that happened. Liar, when? You were at work or something. What, where did he come from? Who? This boy where they all come from. We met on an app. Did you have sex in the house? Shit, said the son. Are you really asking me that? You're the
4: one who brought this up, said his mother. I'm asking because I'm worried about
3: you. You weren't worried then, detective. I said I am worried, said the mother, you little shit. Then don't be, said her son. And anyway, said the son, dad caught us. He told the guy to go home. This made the mother open her mouth, but she didn't say anything. Her son waited for the words, but they just didn't come, so they both moved on.
4: Once upon a time, the mother didn't tell her son. My own mother tried to marry me off. Once upon a time, the mother didn't tell her son. I couldn't have possibly made her life any more difficult. I broke every rule she ever put in front of me. Once upon a time, the mother didn't tell her son. I introduced your grandmother to your father and she told me she'd never approve. I laughed right in her face and once I started I simply never stopped. I laughed for weeks and weeks and weeks
3: until I ran out of breath
4: and then I started again.
3: Sometimes in the evenings they walked, usually in silence. They let the city do the talking between them but this night was dimmer than most and they'd chosen another club in Nichong and jazz drifted from the speakers, and the son looked entirely distracted, flipping his phone on the bar counter. Eventually the soundtrack changed. When the mother said the singer's name aloud, her son made a face. What? She asked. Nothing, said the son. You're just full of surprises. Flying here, listening to city pop.
4: Children are the least surprising parts of their parents' lives. Also, said the mother, uh, does your married man have a
3: name? This again, said the son. You brought it up. He does, said the son. You don't have to tell me what it is, said the mother. I wasn't
4: going to. What do you even do together? Do I need to
3: spell it out? You know exactly what I'm asking you. Well, said the son, once upon a time... Oh, enough with that. He takes me to baseball games, said the son. He likes baseball, and we go for walks. That's it? Are you saying there should be more? Do you think we're aliens? No, said the mother.
4: But her son couldn't read her tone. It had a tenor he'd never heard her
3: use before. The son picked up his phone again. He tossed it back onto the counter. Fine, said the mother. Then. Tell me a story about your students. Uh, You don't want to hear about them, said the son. Of course I do. And you clearly need something else to talk about. They don't take me seriously, he said. It's like they know the whole thing's just an act. But they've taught me a lot. The
4: mother was about to ask what specifically the teens had taught him. But the son raised a finger, grabbing his cell. He spoke quickly and quietly. His tone reminded her of his father's, and then the son stepped across the room, down the stairs and out of sight, whispering into his phone, leaving his mother alone. He didn't come back for a while. Eventually, the mother realized that the bartender had been watching her. They made eye contact, and the bartender nodded,
3: reaching for another glass. That night, they walked back to the apartment in silence, and they'd nearly made it to the complex when the son sat on the bench up front hiding his head in his hands.
4: The mother eyed him, blinking. She thought about rubbing his back. She wasn't sure if she should. Listen, said the mother. I don't claim to know what it's like, but I know that disrupting a marriage could be the death of you. You have to trust me.
3: Is that why you flew here, asked the son, to
4: lecture me? I'm only telling you what I see. You have to take care of yourself.
3: You don't know anything about it. I know that it's eating you up. You don't know shit.
4: I know that it's got you crying at midnight halfway across the world.
3: What if I told you that everyone knows, said the son? Him and his wife. What if I told you that she doesn't mind, that she's got her own thing going on too? What if I told you that that's just the way it is and I'm fine with that? The son found himself breathing heavily and the mother took a second to catch her own breath. A group of guys walked around them smoking and one of them looked their way, whistling. When the son stood up, the mother put her palm on his shoulder. He sat back down. Maybe I should go back, said his mother. Maybe you should, said the son. I left because you made me, he said. No one made you do anything, said his mother. No, said the son, you made me. I would have died, so you made me.
4: The mother wasn't sure they were talking about the same thing. And before she could ask, the son shook his head. He stepped into the complex alone. Once upon a time, the mother didn't tell her son, I caught you with a boy. You never knew that I knew. Once upon a time, the mother didn't tell her son, I watched the way you looked out the window afterward, and I thought about cupping your cheeks in my palm, telling you to go where you want it. Once upon a time, the mother told her son I flew halfway around the world to find you, and you were doing mostly fine, or as fine as could be expected. I didn't know if I preferred that to finding you in a mess. I didn't know if one was better than the other, wasn't sure if I should stay to find out. His mother had planned to stay a week, but on her last morning she extended her ticket. The airline didn't give her a hard time, her son didn't say anything about it either. That evening, he didn't come back to the apartment and she walked up the road to sit in a bar by herself. She ordered a glass of wine, watching the couples sitting across from each other. Another woman sitting alone made eye contact, and the mother nodded, and she nodded too.
3: The next morning the son returned. He was brighter than when
4: he'd left. You weren't wearing those clothes yesterday, said the mother.
3: Another case closed, said the son. I just don't think it's right. Which part of it? You know what I mean. I don't think I do. Then that's your problem,
4: said the mother. It's your problem for not trusting me. It's your life. You have to trust me to know that, at least. And before her son could say anything else, the mother added,
3: it wasn't my first time. Your first time what, said the son, wiping his face. At one of those bars,
4: a bar like that. Oh. I'd been with my sister. Oh. She took me a few times, said the mother. Once she took me and your father. We had a nice time. The mother and her son stood across from each other. She glanced outside through the window at some kids hopscotching on the sidewalk.
3: Okay, said the son. Okay, said the mother. Well, said the son. That would have been nice to know. Before, I mean. The son was still standing in the doorway, and when a man in the hallway passed behind him he turned around, nodding and saying something his mother couldn't understand. Then the son turned to his mother. He stepped back outside and closed the door.
4: On the weekend, they went to the park. The mother watched her son pick up snack after snack in the convenience store, tossing them into his basket, bantering with the man behind the register. Neither of them said much as they took one train and then another, filtering from her son's part of Tokyo before walking through a handful of alleys that sprawled into an open field. A soccer game went on to their right. A group of students danced to hip hop in the foreground. What looked like the beginnings of a wedding photo session played out just beside the blanket they'd unfolded onto the grass.
3: The son spread the food across their blanket "'opening boxes and shuffling silverware. "'I forgot to bring a fork,' he said.
4: "'I'll be fine,' said the mother.
3: "'I meant for me.' "'Of course you did!' "'So,'
4: said the mother, "'what do you and your boyfriend eat together?'
3: "'This was enough for the son to look up. "'I've never heard you use that word,' he said.
4: "'Well,' said the
3: mother. "'The son grinned. "'His mother didn't. "'He has a name, though,' said the son.' You can call him that.
4: Baby steps, said the mother.
3: The son watched the students as they made their way through their dance. We go to bars, he said. We eat at stalls. Sometimes he cooks for me.
4: Do you ever cook for him? Sure. Often? Often enough. You should cook for the ones you love, said the mother. Is there a story behind that? The mother looked at her son, squinting. For the longest time, she thought he looked like his father before deciding she wasn't exactly sure whom he looked like. It would be a few years before she decided this was because of their own similarities. Once upon a time, said the mother, I met your father in a library. He loved poetry. That was his thing. He saw that I loved it too. And that's when I knew. Him seeing what I saw, that's what tipped me off. Listen, said the mother. If you're ever in a relationship as long as the one I've been in with your father, you'll know what to look for. And you should trust yourself to know, whatever that means to you, whatever that looks like.
3: The son turned away from his mother. He wiped at his face. The married couple beside them stumbled around in front of the photographer. That sounds sentimental, he said.
4: I didn't say that it wasn't. His mother looked over the top of his head at the newlyweds taking photos. When the woman looked up, they made eye contact. The mother smiled at her, and the woman smiled back.
3: Anyway, said the mother, I thought we were taking turns. So now you want to play. The son looked at his mother, and then at the group of students chanting and dancing. It felt like the temperature had fallen just a bit.
4: The song sounded a little like one the mother knew, some tune she hadn't heard in a very long time. But as soon as the thought occurred to her, she cast it away. And she knew it couldn't have been possible. Hey, he said.
3: I'm sorry. Yeah, she said. You should be. No, he said. I meant for the other thing, for everything. You probably think I'm an idiot. The teens in front of them slowed their dancing, falling all over one another.
4: It was enough for the mother to grin despite herself. The world was bigger than anyone could ever know. Maybe that was hardly a bad thing. You are an idiot, she said.
3: Thanks, said the son. You're welcome. Maybe you should leave, after all.
4: I don't think so, said his mother. Grabbing another rice roll from the basket. Tell me something else.
0: That was Petronia Paley and Michael Potts performing Brian Washington's Palaver. I'm Meg Wallitzer. What's great about this story is the low-key and incremental way that it charts emotional education. Because the mother and son are together only for a short period of time, the education is speeded up. It's more like a crash course. Yet there's no big scene, just a quiet coming to terms. You may have noticed that this program is about mothers. So let me tell you a little about mine, because you are about to meet her. Hilma Wallitzer is 92 years old. She is a novelist and short story writer who sold her first story, Today a Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket, in 1966. And it also happens to be the name of her recent collection. She's had a long and wonderful career, and it's still going on. Here she is. Hi, Meg. So glad to see you, Mom. Me too. So I noticed, reading your oeuvre, there are a lot of mothers in your work, aren't there?
1: Yes, there were a lot of mothers in my life as well. Really? Yes. How so? Because people of my generation, women of my generation, generally just had children. Most of us didn't think about it. We just had them. I mean, I was raised by a housewife to be a housewife and to be a mother. I was not raised to be a writer.
0: The women protagonists in your stories all have children. Do you believe in the advice, write what you know?
1: I'm more inclined to think that you should find out what you know by writing about it.
0: And that's how you went about it?
1: Yes, really.
0: Who told you to do that? Did you just instinctively do that?
1: I also read a great deal. I didn't intend to become a writer. I didn't sign a contract with my husband, with your dad, to be a writer. I agreed to be a wife and mother. What I did find out when I began writing was all that experience, all that domestic experience, was wonderful fodder. It was literary fodder.
0: When did you realize that? Were you, like, in the middle of being a brownie troop leader and you thought—
1: Ooh, this is good material? Probably in the middle of making a diagonal jello mold.
0: <laughs> How do you do that? How do you make it diagonal?
1: I'm not going to give away all my secrets today, am I? (laughs) No, no.
0: But you did a lot of creative stuff around the house. Was that a way of just sort of channeling all your creativity?
1: I think so. I made homemade Halloween costumes. You won first prize as the headless horseman at the Halloween party when you really wanted that scratchy princess costume from the store. I made birthday cakes from scratch, adding layers and layers until they collapsed. And I think the whole family was relieved when I began to put some of that creative energy somewhere else into stories. I've brought you here, actually, to confront you about that princess costume. I've really, you know, this is
0: kind of an intervention. This is kind of a psychological moment that I really want to confront you about as it's caused me so much pain.
1: Well, I have to apologize publicly (laughs) for all that. This is a great place
0: for it. We air all of our family secrets on this show. So tune in. Not all, I hope. Not all, but some. Some. What was it like for you being a housewife in the 60s and 70s and starting to be a writer? I mean, you were the only one you knew in our neighborhood, right? Was there anyone else I doing had never, creative work?
1: I had never met another writer. We didn't even have a bookstore in the town right. in which we lived. We had a good library, but we didn't have a bookstore. But I did read a lot, and I began writing, and it was difficult because you kids were around a lot, and there was no separate place. There was no private room. I didn't have Colette's Willie to you know, lock me into a room to work. I had to work at the kitchen table on a standard typewriter, and you kids and the dog were running around the table at the same time. And somehow, I was able to block you out, mentally at least, if not physically, and write. And you even came home for lunch, I know. I'm so
0: sorry. Yes,
1: I know. That was a shame.
0: (laughs) I know, because you really need that uninterrupted time. But I remember the library being such a powerful place for all of us, you and me probably in particular. I felt once you started to publish, when we went to the library, they let us take out as many books as we wanted. I kind of felt really important, kind of like the Kennedy family swanning around (laughs) Hyannis Port. Ooh, we're really important with my 10 Cherry Ames Junior Nurse books. You had
1: quite an imagination, Meg.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes,
1: definitely, definitely.
0: Did you feel constrained about what you could write about? Again, you're living in a suburb.
1: Presumably people you know are reading your work. Did you feel that there were things you couldn't write about? Oddly enough, I didn't. I felt there were things I might not have been able to say at a dinner party. There were ways I couldn't behave, but I could let my characters do it. It was a subliminal way of acting out, I think. Uh, My stories were a little brazen, much more brazen than I was. I was a little shy in those days. Where does that come from? Is that just a side of you that you've chosen
0: socially not to emphasize? It's the true me. (laughs) Mom. (laughs) No, but it's true. Your work is filled with all kinds of things. It has sexual content. It has marital complexities, ambivalence toward the character's children, all kinds of things like that.
1: It does, and I probably was dealing with some of my own emotions and some of my own experience, but I was also curious about the others, about the neighbors, what was going on in other people's houses. And it was that curiosity about the other, imagining the other, that I think really drove me to become a writer. And what I hope for is that when a reader reads the work, there's that shock of recognition.
0: I think there definitely is. And you're right about Thinking of other houses. I used to lie in bed in our house. We lived on a block where the houses were pretty close together. And And identical. And identical looked exactly alike. But whatever went on inside was not identical. And there was a little window and I could see into the girls' room next door. And I had a whole fantasy life about what was going on in that family because you never really do know. And that's Mm -hmm. what fiction does. On this show, which celebrates short stories – we get like a little window into the lives of others. And I think that's just so
1: profound. I agree. And I'm still curious about other people's lives. Is there a point at which curious becomes inappropriate? Not in my case, because I never wrote directly about people I knew, though it was quite tempting. I would use perhaps a line of dialogue or two because my mother was such a great Mrs. Malaprop that I had to use it, but I never based a character on her. She didn't appear in my fiction, and none of my friends did, so they could feel safe talking to me. What was at least one line that you used from your mother? Well, after my sister broke up with a young man, my mother said, gee, she dropped him like a baked potato.
0: (laughs) Speaking of mothers, she was a wonderful mother. My grandmother, who we called Ma Rose, It's so interesting to think about character because I've always said to students when I teach, that feeling that happens when a character enters a room is almost like the room temperature changes and you want to feel that difference. It's not just somebody comes in and talks and then leaves. They come in and talk and you, the reader, feel something a little bit different in the air. Do you feel that way?
1: Yes, definitely, because they bring their experience with them. They bring their secrets. They bring everything they know which expands what you know, which is really quite limited. So when I say write to find out what you know, your characters inform you a lot about what you know on an unconscious level, and perhaps you didn't realize. You know, I mean, there's nothing mystical about it. My characters are not ghosts who appear, and I don't actually visually see them but I see them in my mind, and I hear them in my mind.
0: Yeah, the first line of Dr. Spock's Baby and Child Care, speaking of motherhood, is something like, trust yourself, you know more than you think you do. Well, I guess that's two lines. But that's right. That's what a writer has to do. You know more than you think you do because you've been living in the world. You've been marinating in all the things that you see. So even if you didn't study writing... If you're interested in the world and other people and you love reading, I think that's a a great start for a reader. and
1: that's what you had. You have a vocabulary to use, and you have life experience, and you have that curiosity about other people, and you have conversations with people every day, dialogue that you might or might not incorporate into your work. As I said, I would incorporate a line or two from my mother. As she said when I was in labor, take gas when the time comes. Have I ever led you astray? (laughs) (laughs) Right. How did the women's liberation movement help you? Because you became a writer right at that moment. It was the best timing in the world. It really gave me permission to be a writer because even your dad was a little leery of what I was doing. I was not adhering to the contract we had signed where I would be making dinner parties for his colleagues, my famous jello mold, and raising children, which I was happy to do. I really loved my domestic life And I loved it again when I wrote about it. But I also felt a desire to do something else. I wasn't sure what it was. But when I figured it out, the second wave of feminism began. And really, I would learn that I could do this, that I had a right to do it, and I deserved to do it.
0: How did you feel when you knew that I was starting to become a writer?
1: I was thrilled because, first of all, you had a natural talent. I don't take any credit for turning you into a writer. I mean, there was an example. By the time you began writing, I did know some writers. And you overheard the conversations when you and your sister did the dishes at the dinner parties that were not for dad's colleagues, but for some of mine. And I think that you were already a writer. You were so precocious. You were 11 years old when you wrote your first short story. And you were 22 when you published your first novel. Interestingly enough, I was 44.
0: Yeah, so the joke was that your mother, my grandmother, was going to publish at 88, but that
1: did not happen. She missed her deadline.
0: And now that you mentioned that first story that I did when I was 11, you know, I am the host of this show, and I kind of get some say on what goes on the air, so I'm wondering if maybe they would consider... I don't know. I know some people who know some people. What writers influenced you when you were starting out?
1: Well, I was reading Grace Paley, who I felt was an amazing writer because... She wrote in the voice of her neighborhood. She sounded like people I knew. And so I didn't have to find some peculiar dialect. I could talk in a natural voice, and Grace Paley taught me that. And she was also very funny and very sad, often on the same page. I loved Nathaniel West, Miss Lonely Hearts, The Day of the Locust. And I loved the British writer Henry Green, whose books mostly had gerunds like loving, leaving. And so my first novel... Party Going, right? And Party Going, yes. In fact, they were all together in one volume. And my first novel was called Ending. And I think in some ways it was an homage to him that I used a gerund title. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I did not know that. That's so great.
0: Do you have any advice for people who are mothers or fathers, parents who are trying to write and have children around and have to figure out a way to sort of make it all work? Anything that you would say?
1: I think you have to set aside a certain period of time. For me, the best time in the world now that my children are grown and out of the house for for many years. Physically grown, not necessarily emotionally grown, but I think you're very grown up. I found that going to the typewriter from the minute I woke up, right from bed to the typewriter. As Amy Tan says, from dream to dream was the best time. But I couldn't do that when I was a young mother. I had to make breakfast. I had to get you off to school. I had to walk the dog. I had to warm up the car for dad before he left in the winter, you know, and stuff like that. And then I had those few hours before you came home for lunch. So I had to set it up. And I also worked late at night. These were not ideal times for me. But I think that people have to find the time somehow, and not neglect their families, because families are really most important thing in the world to me, and also useful in my writing. Yeah. So
0: maybe we should talk a little bit about the earlier days when I was becoming a writer, when you were in the full flush of becoming a writer and all
1: of that. Do you remember any of that? I remember that you tied a note to the dog's collar. I don't know whether it was when my first novel had just been accepted, but you wrote a note, you tied it to the dog's collar, and you said, go to mommy. And the dog raced in, and I took down the note, and it said, oh, you lucky dog. (laughs) So I think that you were already interested in the career in a kind of ambitious way as well as a literary way.
0: I think writers start by imitating right we find something that we love and every writer kind of starts that way i remember actually when i was really really young i came to you with a book idea that i'd written and it was called something like amelia cordelia and she was a housekeeper who did things like dust the curtains and you were like meg this is so brilliant I want to show it to my agent. And I burst into tears because I'd completely stolen it from Amelia Bedelia, the famous (laughs) book that you just did not know. And I was terrified for a minute that you were actually going to show it to your agent and then I'd be found out as a criminal. But I think what I was doing was finding something that I liked and trying to bring my version of life to it. I often quote this line from Zadie Smith, I'm trying to express my way of being in the world. I think you were doing that, right? And I, I was,
1: but I have to tell you that I plagiarized as well when I was a child, even though I didn't start writing seriously until I was in my middle age. I did write, when I was about eight years old, a novel. I can't remember the name of it, but it was about the first hundred years of a woman's life, a little... Ambitious. The first about hundred that. years. The first I'd like hundred. To read the years. second hundred years. That's <laughs> <Right. laughs> the sequel. And coincidentally, we had a book in our house, "Hitty, Her First Hundred Years," which was the story of a doll. And so I was already plagiarizing too. And I think you learn to speak by listening to other people speak. You learn to write by reading other people. Even Helen Keller was supposed to have plagiarized something.
0: I remember talking to you about writing, showing you my work, and. You generally liked everything that I wrote, which frustrated me.
1: Yes, you got very angry. You said, you just like everything I do. So I began to think that you really want to be treated like a colleague, like a peer, and you wanted criticism. So I gave you some constructive criticism, and you burst into tears. So I had to find some happy medium. That sounds about
0: right. That sounds about right. But I recall also going to school in the morning, and you mentioned typewriter and, oh, that word – you know, which brings back so many memories, that sort of clacking sound that it Your made. sister
1: said she loved hearing it when she went to sleep.
0: Yeah. It's the sound of knowing that you can sleep, but your mother is up working and dreaming and thinking up things and being excited about what she's doing. But I would leave for school in the morning, and you'd be in your bathrobe at the desk typing— And I'd come home from school the days that I didn't come home for lunch and interrupt your flow. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Uh, But when I came home at the end of the day, you might still be there. And you might have had a lousy writing day. And there would just be the motor of the electric typewriter was running, but there wasn't a lot on the page. Or maybe you had a great day. I think what I got from you back then was this is what it's like. You have bad days. You have better days. Even when you think you've had a good day, your editor... No one may want it, first of all. Or if you're lucky enough and you have an editor, they may say, no, no, go back and do it again.
1: But when you're writing it, you don't think about other people. I don't think about other readers. I'm writing it for myself, and I find I'm my own best critic at first. Though, you know, Virginia Woolf said about, I don't know if it was to The Lighthouse, she said, is it nonsense? Is it brilliance? And you do have that lack of real assessment of your own work right away. And you have to revise. And I love revising because you're not facing an empty page or an empty screen. You have something to work with.
0: Yeah, I remember that feeling of pride that when you had a whole manuscript, there were these pages. And you would even put them in the refrigerator when we went out because... If the house if there was burned a fire, down, right. we heard they would be safe there. We didn't have computers, so there was no other copy of it. There was just in the freezer. There was good humor bars and a novel by Hilma Wallitzer. <laughs> I don't see why any family needs anything else in their freezer. You children probably
1: would have saved the good humor bars before right. you saved my oh, novel. and it may be a novel.
0: Swanson dinner, this being the 1970s.
1: Don't give away all my secrets. No, no.
0: The idea of two writers in a house. It was a wonderful, wonderful time for me because there was that sense that you could do anything. I think you, inspired by the women's movement, were encouraging me to sort of, and my sister Nancy, to kind of do what we wanted to do. And she went to art school to become an artist. And I wanted to be a writer because it was what I would be doing anyway. And this is, I suspect, true for you. Wouldn't you be doing it anyway, even if nobody had paid you or said they were going to publish you?
1: I think I wrote because I couldn't stop writing because I had to write. I took myself seriously, but I don't think anybody else did until I published. I remember my parents calling me in stereo on two telephones and saying, how are you? What did you do today? And I would say, I started a new short story. And my mother would say, did the sheets come from Macy's? It was as if I hadn't said anything about writing. And then when the first story Today a Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket was accepted by the Saturday Evening Post, which was a major national magazine, my parents were stunned. And my father said, oh, my goodness, I read that at the dentist, which gave it real authority. And then they began thinking of me as a writer. But before that, I don't think anybody really did except me.
0: It's amazing looking at that body of work from your first short story, Today, A Woman Went mad in the Supermarket, one of the great titles, I have to say, to your most recent story and looking at kind of a writer's career over time when you published this collection last year. And you wrote a new story for the end of the book. Do you want to say anything about that?
1: Yeah, that's the story that's most autobiographical. As I said, I never wrote exactly about my own experience. I would find a couple who were very similar to Dad and me. The Palitzers. Yes. yes. (laughs) That's very funny. And I would write about them, and I would give them some of my own experience, but not all. So it was a mix of truth or truth wrapped in a lie or lie wrapped in the truth. I can never figure that out. But the new story was called The Great Escape, and I wrote it after Dad died of COVID and after I had COVID in the beginning, the very beginning of the pandemic. And for the first time, I really felt compelled to use my own experience. I assigned it to those same characters who appear earlier in the book, but I put more actual facts about what happened to us. And it's not just about dad's death from COVID, but it's about a long marriage and how it ends. But it also has funny parts to it as well. How did it help you to write that? During... That early period of the pandemic, there were none of the usual rituals of mourning. There was no real funeral. Dad was cremated without anyone to see him off. No one came to visit me because I was still infected when I came out of the hospital. And so it was as if he had disappeared, and that's what I said in the story. He seemed to have vanished. He seemed to have escaped like Houdini rather than died. So writing this story was both painful and a catharsis at the same time. I couldn't not write it. I didn't think I could type that fast. That's that's how I wrote it.
0: And that makes me think actually about our show and what we do on the show because listening to someone else's experience, someone else's deeply felt experience, whether it's actual you know, stuff that happened to them or just stuff they imagined – You get caught up in that same necessary way and we get swept into how people live and what they go through and how they come out the other side.
1: It really is about how we live and it doesn't have to be true factually, but it has to be true in other ways, true in how we really live with one another. I think it's true of all
0: kinds of short stories, funny ones, sad ones, absurdist ones, all different kinds of stories that we have on the show someone else's mind churned and churned and came up with this thing and we connect with it. And I think that's what's so exciting to hear it read aloud.
1: I know. I agree. And such a pleasure to read those stories.
0: Yes. Well, Mom, thank you so much for giving me your time. I mean, honestly, if I didn't get you here in the studio, I don't know when I would see you because
1: you're such a social butterfly. (laughs) Yeah. Are you thanking me also for all the time I gave up when you were a child? (laughs) Oh, no. I am so guilty of that.
0: When I think about how I would burst in Because there was a math problem. Well, why go to you for a math problem? We're
1: both hopeless. (laughs) I think Dad was a much better source for that. But it is true that having
0: children means that your writing might take on a certain staccato, broken up, a lot of white space between the paragraphs, paragraphs ending in the middle quality
1: because I was
0: underfoot. And I am sorry about that.
1: But may I tell you a joke? Yes, please. Um, They asked this very old woman if you had to do it all over again, would you have children? And she said, oh, yes, only not these children. <laughs> and everyone laughs at it. Truthfully, I don't have that regret at all. I had the perfect children. I handpicked you. I could not be happier to have you here. Thanks so much, Mom, for coming. Thank you, darling.
0: That was Mom, Hilma Wallitzer, and I am her very lucky daughter, Meg Wallitzer. She may not have always known best, but if you ask me, her average was pretty high. Thanks for joining us for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vita Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Scheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our Board of Directors, Producer Circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.